0: It's time for the fourth episode of the Supergivers podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Johnson, and I'm excited to have Sonia Scavarla, entrepreneur and founder of A Social Ignition, a nonprofit mentoring program for prisoners. In this conversation, Sonia inspires me with the work she's doing, and even more so as she shares about her personal journey and the surprising role of empathy in her vision. Also, for anyone who struggles with creating progress towards your own vision, Sonia provides invaluable insight into one simple, if not easy, game changing action you can take. Welcome to the Super Givers Podcast, Sonia Skvarla. How are you today?
1: I'm well. How are you, Jesse? <laughs> I'm doing great.
0: Uh, Thanks for being on, and I'd love to start with who are you and what are you doing in the world?
1: Wow. Just just to say a few words. Um, So, yeah, my name is Sonia Scavarla, and I am a resident here, Portland, Oregon. I'm doing quite a bit in the world these days. I run two companies, um, one of which is a communications and systems design firm doing work for for for-profit companies and nonprofits around the world and it's called Offroad and the other work that I'm doing um the other company is called A Social Ignition and we teach entrepreneurship in prison and work with men as they transition out into the world and start new lives.
0: So tell us a little bit more about A Social Ignition and and what its goals are and um how you started it.
1: Sure, so it started maybe five or six years ago. I lose track pretty quickly. Um, But I had an opportunity to meet about 100 men and women with criminal records who had experienced incarceration and the barriers coming out of that to just normal life on the outside, whether that was employment or living or relationships with family or loved ones. And it was from their stories that I really got a good sense, or at least a beginning sense, a taste of what it was like to go through being in isolation and then being released into the world and all of its increasingly complexness. And so I, I spoke with these men and women and, and got a t- taste, and I really couldn't turn away after that, truthfully. there was It struck something in me. I've never experienced incarceration myself. Um, at the time, I didn't think I had known anybody um, that there's an ellipse there, and some other stories came out later. but um, essentially, I didn't know that I knew anybody who'd experienced that before and um, so I went to work as a consultant, taking my business acumen into. Organizations that were working with men and women in that field of reentry to figure out what was working, what wasn't working, and found a few holes that I really felt I was uniquely able to fill uh, based on my business acumen, my work with small and large businesses in the past, and those sort of things. So I developed a curriculum. Um, it's six weeks long, it's called the Ignition Option. We teach that in prison, took a year to get um, permission from the Department of Corrections, but we did it and have been teaching this entrepreneurship class at Columbia River Correctional Institution here in Portland for about three and a half years. And then following that course, we the men are able to join the long haul, which is individual and small group coaching towards whatever their life goals are. They're launching into a brand new phase of life, all of these men. And so we really give them one-on-one attention, which would otherwise not be possible in the system.
0: Hmm. And what's the hopeful outcome?
1: Well, that's that's varied over the course of the last three years as we really got to learn what's most useful for them, because that really is the most important thing is what is the most relevant and useful for these men. And honestly, although to some folks the wins might be small um, to these men, they are huge, whether that's staying out of prison the longest they ever have before in their life Um, It may be that a big win is they're out and they are able to successfully kick a friend off their couch who is not contributing to the household the way they need to be. Hmm. Um, Or it could be successfully um, starting a relationship or ending a relationship, gaining employment, new housing. I mean, really... A lot of the things that we would, might take, advan- take for granted in our day-to-day life, these are big wins for people who've been isolated for so long.
0: Yeah, and even though this is geared towards entrepreneurial training, it sounds like there's also an incredible whole, like, comprehensive benefit to how these men are then reincorporating into the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, entrepreneurship really is a life skill. Whether it's in the context of starting your own business, it's really about problem solving. Entrepreneurship is about what is the problem that you're trying to solve in the world? Who has that problem? And how do I get from A to B to C to D to Z? And so we, we use the entrepreneurial context. Um, it's a little bit safer conversation in the beginning as we're all getting to know each other but before long the transferable skills between the entrepreneurship track and the life skills of how to problem solve one's life trajectory become pretty obvious to them.
0: Right. Yeah. It's like flexing a really important muscle that they, they can then apply throughout their lives.
1: Exactly. It's, you know, that creative problem solving skills that they're really actually trained out of. Hmm. Uh while they're incarcerated, it's not that creativity is not encouraged there,
0: okay, so at the risk of insulting uh, you and anybody listening why why should I care as somebody of the community? How does this make the world better for you to be doing this work?
1: Well, definitely not insulted. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this is a question that people ask, uh, if not out loud, I think in their in their small circles, fairly regularly right. But truthfully, my take on it, and everybody needs to find their own, but my take on it is that as a whole, as a civilization, society, community, we don't move ahead if we're holding others back. And we have designed some systems now that I'm sure had very good uses in the beginning, but they've gone off the rails. And we have designed these systems that, whether intentionally or not, are holding people back. And that puts stresses on other systems in our community. So whether you wanna say, if these men get out and have great income and start paying taxes, and so now they no longer contribute to the systems that we have of incarceration, which is very expensive, or other entitlement programs that we have, They're paying into those systems instead of retrieving from those systems. That's sort of basic economic, right? Yeah. My take on it is much more about humanity of people. Um, I believe that we we need all the world's voices in order to solve the world's problems. It's amazing to me that so many people coming out of incarceration are not allowed to vote, yet they are the ones with the most expertise in a lot of these systems that we're voting on their function. So for me, it's about, we need all the people, knowledgeable, smart people in order to get ahead, in order to solve the world's problems.
0: Yeah, that's exactly the answer I, I hope you gave, even though I didn't know it until you said it. <laughs> 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 I love that. We don't move ahead by holding others back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Especially, I mean, when you get down to it, and this could be a whole other podcast for another day, but when you get down to it, our justice system and our legal system—it's almost arbitrary. Uh, we've just made it so convoluted that um, the reasons why people are incarcerated do have are really of no indication on whether or not they are a successful human being. And whether or not they can contribute to society. So we need to fix it up. And although there's a really big system that I can only affect a very small piece of, I'll take responsibility for my corner. And luckily, there's lots of other people working on lots of other parts of that system. So eventually, we can begin to make a dent.
0: I love it. I love, I just love where you're coming from. So, have you any? I'm going to put you on the spot. Have you any uh, significant data to speak of in terms of the outcomes you've seen so far? Or even if it's just anecdotal?
1: Oh, yeah. So I've got both. Um, okay. The biggest thing being in terms of numbers. So we've had about 80 guys go through our entrepreneurial course. And about half that have continued into the long haul. Um, I will let you in. About 10 of those have started businesses. Mm. So uh, and all the ones that are out are employed. Uh, SANS 1. Wait, so
0: 79 out of 80 are currently employed?
1: So not all of those men have been released.
0: Oh, oh, got it.
1: Yeah. So this is the the part where counting sort of begins to break down. Sure. Um, Is that we've been around for three and a half years. Some of the men that we've worked with have been released. Others have not. And so many of them... have been released and 99% of them are employed.
0: And how does that compare yes. to
1: the the employment rate of the control group, so to speak? Right. So believe it or not, they don't track unemployment for people who with criminal records. Um so there is not a very good control group. The the numbers that you could hear are probably around 80% unemployment.
0: 80% unemployment?
1: Unemployment. All right.
0: So just to match up for somebody listening, so you're saying your data is roughly 99% employment versus 20% employment. Rough rough guesses. Right. Okay. So that's I would I would say just not being a uh, not being a a research specialist. I would say that that's a significant p value.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It's pretty good. Uh, And truthfully, that's true. There's a lot of reasons for that, but that's true of people who stick with programs, who start in prison, who stick with programs and continue those programs on the outside. That's going to be true of a lot of programs. So it's not just specific to a social ignition, although we attract, you know, people with certain interests in the world, business building, employment, they want to work, right? That's why they come to us. So... But that's true of people who are in programs. Unfortunately, there's just not that very many programs in prison that take people through that trajectory.
0: But the thing I like about this, and I want to say the thing that's valid, even if you want to get into sort of picking apart the data and saying, okay, well, you're self-selecting subjects who are already self-motivated by taking your program, it doesn't really matter from my perspective because you're providing a program and what you're saying is that that's what you can do and if it's working for this set of people then all we need to do is is to start creating enough programs for as many of inmates to be interested in right and then that theoretically that rate should come up across the board whether it's entrepreneurial hood or whatever right
1: absolutely so if you figure there's two million people who are currently incarcerated and the guys in our entrepreneurial class have decided that fourteen percent of incarcerated people are an absolute perfect fit for a social ignition. We've done the research. Um, so about 14%, that's a pretty good number. 14% of two, that 2 million mm-hmm. at a given time would be the perfect fit for a social ignition. That seems pretty good to me.
0: Yes. I mean, 280,000, right? Yeah. Yep. Very cool. Wow. Okay. So let's, uh, we'll come back to that. I really want to know, how your personal story, starting as early as you'd like, pointed you towards um, supporting prisoners.
1: Sure. So a lot of this story came to me in retrospect. I think probably is true of a lot of us. We miss a lot of the seeds that are planted as they're being planted through our lives. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh, maybe that's why I was interested in that thing. Or maybe <laughs> Right, It's sort of this retrospect reflective Totally. that begins to reveal these things. Of course
0: this was my story, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Oh, you wanted to know my story. Now I have right. to look back and tell you. Because right. um, I didn't know that that's what was being written at the time, right? Mm. So throughout my life, there have been seeds planted from um, in my early 20s, being in a situation where many of the people who I was in community with happened to be drug dealers because in this very rural town, there wasn't a lot else to do or to make money. Um, And so I think that was probably one of the the first seeds planted in this rural area where I was living at the time and second seed being planted. And so that's where I got to know that just because of a thing you do that somebody else says is wrong, doesn't mean you're a bad person. Mm. Right. And because they were my friends, they were people I could relate to even though that wasn't the scene I was in, I knew them. Um, I caught a glimpse of the systemic issues and the discrimination that comes when I was probably mid-20s and working in Seattle. And I was working for a pizza shop up there, which will remain nameless now. But I was put in charge of hiring. And I was all excited, my first management position and got my candidates together and figured out who I wanted to hire and sent the paperwork up the chain of this small restaurant chain. And it got sent back to me that half of the folks that I had chosen would not be employed there and I'd have to pick others. Well, it turns out the reason for that is because they had criminal records and this company flat out wouldn't hire people with criminal records at all. Hmm. And so that to me was, but these are the best candidates. You've charged me with making something out of this restaurant and hiring the best people. I've told you who the best people are and now you're taking them off the table for me. So that didn't work for me either, but I was in my mid 20s and again, seeds being planted that I had no idea would grow later. Um I moved on after my the fit the first fit that I threw about that. Um, So it really wasn't until this time when I got to meet all these people with criminal records and speak with them and interview them while I was in graduate school that it really began to take hold. But I have to say, I think one of the reasons why I was primed and ready when it did take hold was because there were other things that I heard in their stories that aren't the stories that you hear all the time. You know, we think about barriers as, like I said, they can't get a job or there's no place to live or some of these kind of things, or their debt is too high. We hear about that all the time. And those weren't things that I could relate to. I grew up in sort of um middle-class white suburban neighborhood outside of Chicago. And I always had a place to live, always had a job if I wanted it. Debt wasn't a problem until I went to college, but that's a privilege. So, those weren't really the issues. The thing that I related to was really sort of coming from my family of origin. I could really relate to not feeling good enough, feeling as though somebody else had expectations to me, on me, on how I was supposed to be or how I was supposed to act and not being able to live up to those or not feeling like I could live up to those. Feeling like other people knew better what life was supposed, what a successful life looked like. Other people knew better about that than me. And so they must know what's better for me. And so listening to them and not listening to myself. These are the kind of things that I heard echoed in their stories that I could really relate to. And I think that's why, although our backgrounds were very, very different, I just couldn't turn away from the connection that we felt in that time. Well, and one thing that I'm hearing
0: underneath it all is you found empathy. It was more than just relating, you had an experience inside you where you could connect with the part of you that didn't feel good enough. Absolutely. Wow, if there isn't a more relevant topic for. 2018 as we head into it in terms of what our country is going through, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's part of, that's part of what we need to just see more and more of is to look at the people sort of across the aisle from us or across the protest line or whatever it is. And, and listen, listen to what they're saying and really I mean, I just feel like so many of our issues could be solved by drawing it down to the root, because I believe we're all scared of the same things. And what I recognized was that my fear of not being good enough, my fear of not being useful in the world, that I might end up to be more of a drain than I was an asset. That that is shared by people who look nothing like me, who speak nothing like me, although three and a half years in prison, I can de- I definitely speak a little bit more like them now. But that wasn't the case then. And it really, that heart connection, I think is, well, now I know and didn't know at the time. But that's really what I connected to in feeling like this was a group of people that we could work together at this. Their help, they have helped me just as much, if not more, in the long run as I have helped them, but really created a kinship and a relationship.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm just struck by how, hearing what you say, how powerful an antidote to othering that empathy could be.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: And just, just even hearing that that's, that little taste of experiencing people in your adolescence and even just having the awareness and the understanding that, hold on a second, like I see more than just what this behavior is or what, uh, you know, what authority is, is judging about this person's behavior. I see the person. So that ability you had to separate character from behavior at an early age seemed to really drive the opportunity to empathize with a really complex system and situation later on.
1: Yeah. You know, empathy is kind of a big word, right? Right. We hear it a lot and we know we're probably supposed to have it. (laughs) It's something that we aspire to, right? That can be really hard. I think I had the benefit of, of time and the agenda that I brought to these first conversations was really of learning. So there was no point at which I needed to be vulnerable and share that with them. I have since, obviously, that I've recognized this, I, I share. But in those beginning conversations, my story was, did not feel like the important one. Because who was I? Again, I didn't really matter. You know, if I was gone from the world, I truthfully felt like it wouldn't matter. So my story wasn't relevant. The only story that was relevant was that what I was listening to. And truthfully, what I got out of the last five and a half years, all told, is a really deep understanding and love for my own story. And I've done that through working with other people. It was not intentional. I did not set out and say, you know what? I need to understand myself better or I need to have empathy for somebody else. So I need to start with myself or any of that. Um, It was really just being present And being open to learning and through that have really found relationships and as cheesy it may sound, a lot of Mm self-love and recognizing that they and I have lots to contribute in the world. And thank goodness that they're out here doing it.
0: Yeah. And thank goodness that you're out there helping.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're all on the same team.
0: Yeah. Right. So It sounds like you at some point had a chance to do lots of adult level learning and growth on yourself. What did you have to face to, you know, what did you have to face and overcome to make this project happen?
1: Poverty. (laughs) Mm. Um, Starting a nonprofit is not a profit center. So um, lots of money issues were involved in that and my relationship with money and um in my relationship with business and and that um I had to overcome understanding really what my skill sets were and were not. So in order to run a business or a program, it's in what I was pretty firm on on what I is was what I thought I was not capable of. But unfortunately or fortunately When building something like this, I had to not only understand what I wasn't good at, but then also by proxy figure out what I was good at. So that I could lead what I knew and could find teammates that would fill in the blanks.
0: Okay, so how did you find out all this stuff? Trial and error.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right? Um, It's, you know, I mean, that's the great thing about entrepreneurship is, As a solo founder, I just had to do everything in the beginning, and some of it would work and some of it wouldn't. Uh, One great thing is the curriculum I wrote is still almost identical from the first day. Apparently, I'm great at writing entrepreneurial curriculum. (laughs) Uh, Things that didn't work out are fundraising. I'm a terrible fundraiser, hence the poverty. Um, So those were things that I had to employ teammates for, and eventually... Um, we actually dropped the fundraising model altogether. And now my other business funds the work of a social ignition. So I can earn money on one side and spend it in the prison system on the other. Right. You know, it's really that trial and error piece.
0: Yeah. And and I think that's a really key piece. I hope listeners pick up on that. There has to be some foundation here. And for some people, uh, well, there's lots of different ways to, to fuel the, the giving work here. You, you have happened to create a for profit business that supports you to do this other project, right?
1: Right, after three and a half years of cursing myself, of why wasn't I a better fundraiser? What
0: is it about you and how did you stick with it? Because so many people have really great ideas and they don't ever actualize them. So, how did you go from knowing you needed to do this um, and facing some real adversity and some fear? to uh to making it happen
1: i think because it was rooted although unknowing at the time rooted to such deep pieces of what i could relate to what i was really feeling about not mattering in the world that fueled a lot of things that i wasn't privy to at the time Um, And I don't think, I think for a lot of us, we're not conscious of that process as it's going. I think you speak to a lot of entrepreneurs about what they're doing, and you'll hear that sentiment a lot.
0: What other inner resources it took for you to get there, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah. Some of it was knowing what was, just knowing what was interesting to me, following what was interesting to me. And continuing down that path. I mean, of the whole criminal justice system, there's lots of things that are broken. There's lots of work to do, but not allowing myself to get overwhelmed, at least not every day (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, by the work and saying, okay, I'm not going to be working in the legal system. That's not where my skills lie. I'm not going to work in a food kitchen. That's not where my skills lie. Right. So really just process of elimination following what was interesting to me and this idea of letting it emerge and really doing as I was visioning. Those two things need to be done so much at the same time, or at least in quick succession back and forth and back and forth. Mm, Yeah. I think where other classmates of mine from graduate school or whatnot um, have ended up in a different trajectory is spending so much time visioning and that there's this, I mean, there's a great delay. You will vision and then you will begin to do, and it won't look like that vision for a long time. (laughs) It could be a year. It could be five years. It could be 10 years. I was talking to an entrepreneur the other day, 17 years it's taken her to really begin to see that vision take place. And I think if we put this big vision out there really soon and think about it too hard, too long, the delay that it takes, the amount of hard work that it takes to there, we can burn ourselves out too simply, too quickly. And so if we can do a little bit of visioning, say, this is what I want to see in the world, I have nowhere near reached where the vision was that I had. In fact, some of it I had to back off because failure, right? I had to reorient the whole boat. But you have to start. You have to start in action right away. Otherwise, we'll get bored. We'll get burnt out. We'll get overwhelmed. Action right away.
0: So you're saying for you personally, and I'm also hearing this as that's really great advice. That action is part of the antidote towards overwhelm, burnout, boredom.
1: Absolutely. Because you can start checking things off the list right away. As we move, action is about moving forward. And the more you move forward, the options that we have start to fall away. And that cone gets smaller and smaller and smaller to the point just by moving forward forward down the road options become unavailable so if we march down that road it actually gets easier and easier and easier to make decisions as we go the what's not going to happen that timeline actually comes to us and we'll figure out the things that aren't going to go just because that's the way the world works that's the way the universe works is those things, w- the timeline will be that those things will fall away. So, action makes decision making easier. Otherwise, we can end up in what I call analysis paralysis. Somebody else said it before me, I didn't make it up. But that we're just thinking about it and planning and visioning. And it's actually one of the reasons why we don't write business plans in my class. We just start modeling day two. Hmm. Because We'll get all the information, but we need to start testing in real time to know immediately what things will work and what, won't things, what things won't work in that experimentation.
0: Yeah, I love this. I've seen this in myself, and I've also worked with coaching clients around taking action you know, in, in accordance with the vision. So what would you say in your experience if somebody's listening and they've got a great idea, or maybe they already are an entrepreneur, they're having trouble translating the vision into action steps, what would your consult be for them?
1: Start as small as possible. Brain dump the list, as many different things, items as you can think, put them on a list, as small as the item is, as many as there are brain dump them on a page and if you can prioritize them great if that's too daunting just start at the top and say i'm gonna take one step toward this thing maybe it's call a certain person maybe it's go register for a particular conference just start checking off the list before you know it you have made way more progress love that (laughs) Because they don't have to be the right steps, right? Ultimately, there is no one right way to get from A to Z in a business or a project or a program or in life. So you just need to start down the road. You'll never find the right exact path. So all the things that you can think of, put them on a page and then just start at the top.
0: Yeah, and nothing's too small. I think that's what was a big hurdle for me um, a while back as a... As an experimenting entrepreneur, is things that I, I I would take for granted could have actually been counted as tiny steps, and by counting them as tiny steps, they actually energize and keep things on a on a track. And I think that I love that you said it that way because that lesson for anybody trying to accomplish a really big vision, there is no step that's too small. You could have a step that says like write my steps.
1: <laughs> In fact, you should. And, and, yeah. Right? I can. If, if I can should on you for a minute.
0: Should. Should away.
1: You know, that's fantastic. The smaller the step, the better, truthfully, because then it's manageable. We can think about that. If we sit down and say, you know, list 100 people that I want to call and tell about my business, that's a lot of people. But if I can just say, call Bob about my business, great, do that. Then call Jimmy, then call Jesse, then call Michelle, then call Reba, whoever. But I say break it down as small as possible. If you can do it in under 10 minutes, it should be on the list because you can cross those off. If I can get super practical for you for a minute, one way that I've done this is I keep an Excel spreadsheet of to-do lists. This was before project management tools were um, an affordability in my life, Mm -hmm. but uh, you know, a Google or an Excel spreadsheet. Make a to-do list, just right down the side. And when it was done, I didn't delete it altogether. I moved it to the next worksheet that was labeled "success." And so, on any given day, I could go into success, and there would be a whole list of things that I've accomplished. And it's like, man, okay, I am doing something. I'm making progress. Look at all this stuff I finished.
0: And did that help you stay connected with the big vision, even though you were so many steps from actualizing it?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't have too much of a problem with the vision. (laughs) Right, right. I've seen this too. The visionary thing comes pretty naturally to a lot of us. It's translating that down into these little steps, right? Yeah. One of the things that I would say about... Because um, that now that's connecting back to me with super givers, right? Right. What I would say is, although my connection and I stepped way outside, or at least so it felt, of what I knew in order to find a place where I could contribute my social capital, my and and build some social good in the world. I think we can start it doesn't have to be that ambitious, right? A social ignition was a big undertaking. It was, I'm going to start a business doing this. It was a nonprofit. I wrote curriculum. It was like this whole thing, right? And I think it can, or I know, it can start even smaller than that. And that's where when we come up, when we start with the doing right away, then we get to act on the things that are closest to us either in proximity or what they mean to us, or, you know, it could be the person on the bus next to you that you see on the bus every single day. Allow those, those conversations and those connections to just sort of wash over you and allow them to accumulate. And I think that's when we're able to find a direction. If we are trying to decide what direction to go in, I think we can get caught up there as well. I did not decide the criminal justice system was going to be where I put my efforts. I never would have. In if you gave me a list of things to care about, it probably would have been near the bottom. Who I mean why would I even choose it? It was not in my life at all. It it accumulated and revealed itself to me over time.
0: Based on being awake to the impact that life experience had on you.
1: A little bit, but some of that was really in retrospect. That awakeness came two years into the project itself or more. It was really just about moving toward what was interesting to me and what seemed to be accumulating in my life. And that was listening and experiencing people who happened to all be in this criminal justice area, who had happened to experience incarceration. And I was touched, and I just continued to walk in that direction.
0: So how can people listening best support a social ignition?
1: Well, if you're in the Portland area, and you're in some sort of business field, you can come to prison with me. We bring... People, business leaders and professionals into the ignition option class, either to mentor the business modeling process or to come to presentation day or many other things, (laughs) lots of ways to engage. But you can come into prison, meet the guys, begin to work on the business models or anything that they're working on. Uh, It's a really great way to to really add value to their experience And the richness of that experience and meet some really cool people working on the big things that are happening in their lives that will eventually contribute to the rest of our lives so you can definitely come to prison with me what about out of towners yeah well truthfully i would encourage you to find somebody in your area a social ignition will grow in fact um, we are looking at putting some of our programming on tablets um so there might be ways to engage cross country with someone who's incarcerated on their business models and that sort of thing. We're not fully there yet. So I think the biggest thing is while you are welcome to reach out to me and engage at socialignition.com with me, I really would encourage people to find something that's going on in their local area. And I can walk them through that process if that's helpful. Um, But find something that really speaks to your heart in your local area to connect with.
0: Awesome. Sonia, thank you so much for being able to share everything that you've learned and that you're up to and, and about who you are and what you're doing in the world. And thanks for being on the show.
1: Jesse, I really appreciate you having me and your take on the types of people that do good work in the world, not just a commercial for the work that happens. Awesome.
0: To learn more about Sonia and A Social Ignition, go to asocialignition.com. The question of the day is this. If you were to create action that rippled into the world, whom would you most want your action to serve? What tiny step could you take today towards creating that ripple? To find out more about the world of Supergivers, head over to supergivers.com. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, click on the podcast link and send in an application. You can now subscribe to the Super Givers podcast via iTunes. Alternately, you can check us out on SoundCloud and Stitcher. That's all for today. Thanks for listening and maybe even subscribing to the Super Givers podcast, where we celebrate ordinary people creating extraordinary impact in the world. I'm your host, Jesse Johnson, and I hope you'll pass the giving along.